Please stand as you're able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I wanna add my word of greeting to that of Adam Jones. Uh, My name is Davis Chapel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I wanna wish all of you uh, a happy new year on behalf of the new Christian year that begins today with the first season, the first Sunday of Advent. And the word Advent, of course, from the Latin means arrival or entrance. And we're beginning the new church year with this reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Thank you, Mason, for leading us in praise team. Uh, Mason's folks are with us. His parents are here from Texas, and we welcome the Cavanesses here today. And many of you have family members that are present with us today uh, in person, and we welcome you. It's so good to see you all, and we trust that you've had a, a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we welcome you to this new season of Advent. Those of you who are online with us, Uh, It is also a great joy to be in your home or wherever you are. Some of you are traveling today. Some of you will be traveling later today, and we remember you especially in our prayers. It is a great joy and an honor to share the Word of God with you wherever you are and with those of you in person. It is very special uh, to begin this season with you. So today we're beginning a new series of sermons during Advent called Wishful Thinking. And what we're going to do for the next four Sundays is I want us to look very specifically at some of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah. So we don't begin in Bethlehem. In fact, we begin centuries before with the prophets who predict and forecast the coming of the Messiah. And this morning we're going to begin with the prophet Jeremiah, which David has read for us this morning, who is also referred to, by the way, as the weeping prophet. Now, if you've ever been to the Vatican in Rome, to the Sistine Chapel, you have seen this painting of the prophet Jeremiah, who foresaw, predicted, and endured what was the most painful and difficult period of time in the history of Israel. I'm talking about the exile the destruction and deportation of the chosen people from the holy city of Jerusalem that occurred in 587 B.C. Jeremiah was called to ministry as a boy in his youth. And if you remember Jeremiah 1, you remember that he responded as any teenager would have to the call of God. He ran. (laughs) He resisted. I know the feeling. I was 16 when I was sensing God's call, God's nudge on my life for ministry. And Adam, I was much more fearful than I was faithful at that point. It wasn't that I didn't trust God. I just wasn't so sure about me. I thought that God had the wrong guy, and so it was with Jeremiah. 
And he responded to the call of God in Jeremiah 1, 9, and 10 like this. I'm just a boy. I don't even know how to speak. But of course, God persisted. God overruled his reluctance as he often does with us. And Jeremiah acquiesced. The Lord put his hand out and touched his lips and listened to the call story. God said to Jeremiah, now I have put my words in your mouth and today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now that's pretty tough sledding for a boy, isn't it? Not so much, I think, the building and planting, that's one thing, but it's the plucking and pruning that gets you into trouble. When God is pruning me, sometimes it hurts, and I'm not sure if he's cutting me back or cutting me off sometimes, but I feel the sting of pruning. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not. We don't see as many today, but prophets are not always welcome. Prophets are not always known for their charm and appeal. They're politically incorrect, usually. They don't check the polls before they speak. They don't say what we want to hear. They say what we need to hear. They speak of archaic things like sin and repentance, like justice and righteousness. Prophets have a way of exposing the tension They disturb the peace. They name the elephant in the room. Prophets are truth-tellers who know that before you can build and plant, sometimes you have to yank up and weed some things. It's been said, and Jesus himself said it, the truth will set you free. But isn't it true before that happens, the truth usually makes you a little miserable at first? You have to deconstruct some things in your life before you reconstruct. What's interesting to me is that Jeremiah never asked for this job. Who would? I I think about it. I've never seen a want ad in my life for a prophet. But then prophets are not really volunteers. They don't ask for it. They're called to do it. They're appointed They're chosen. Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the great Old Testament professors at Columbia University in Atlanta said, and I quote, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception that is alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. The British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said this in a convicting way, the church often has more fashion than passion. The church is sometimes more apathetic than prophetic and more superficial than supernatural. Jeremiah was anything but superficial. In fact, he saw the demise of Judah and he couldn't keep silent. He saw a nation that was spiritually imploding and he prophesied destruction and captivity. The other prophets of that day in Jeremiah's day claimed that Judah was safe and sound because they were chosen in spite of their disobedience and rebellion. 
But I don't have to tell you that being chosen is less about privilege than it is responsibility. It reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's description of cheap grace, you remember, who stood up against the Third Reich in Germany. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession, absolution without remorse. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. And Jeremiah would have none of it. And sure enough, the destruction of Jerusalem happened just as Jeremiah predicted it. And yet, in the darkest hour, as the Babylonian troops were building to siege the city, something bizarre happened. This is really weird. Jeremiah, who was under house arrest by the king Zedekiah for his treasonous preaching, has a vision. It's a vision of hope. We have lit the hope candle. Drew and James, thank you for lighting the hope candle. And here in the midst of the darkness, Jeremiah has a vision of hope for the future. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in his detention. It's amazing to me the places where God chooses to reveal God's self. For Moses, it was in a little brush fire in Midian where he was hiding out as a fugitive. You cannot hide from God. For Joseph, it was in a jail cell after he had been falsely charged by Potiphar. For Jonah, God appeared to him in the belly of a whale. <laughs> for Paul and Silas, it was in a Philippian dungeon. For Mary, it was in a rustic stable. For Magdalene, it was in a cemetery by a borrowed grave. For Jeremiah, it was in a cistern where he was being held captive by his king. It's amazing the unlikely places where hope shows up. It's not just on hillsides and mountaintops. More often, it is in our lives in those dry valleys and those barren deserts where hope shows up. So after all the doom and gloom of Jeremiah's preaching, finally, <laughs> in chapters 30 through 33, which we call the book of consolation, the book of comfort, God appears to Jeremiah in his confinement and gives him a vision of hope. In fact, in the book of Consolation, in these chapters, there are two visions of hope. The first, very bizarre, his cousin Hanamel comes to visit him in detention and presents him with a real estate deal. This is really interesting. There was a law in Judah that if someone was going to sell a piece of property, they had to offer first right of refusal to the next of kin. This law was called the law of redemption. And sure enough, Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, comes to the cistern where Jeremiah is detained and presents him with a real estate deal, and he signs the deed. He buys the land. Now, that begs the question, why on earth would anybody buy property in a war zone? You think for one minute that when Nebuchadnezzar rezones Judah, he's going to honor that contract? There's not a chance. In fact, it's not worth the papyrus that it's written on. But Jeremiah buys the property. 
He pays top shekel for it. He has it notarized, copied, and sealed in a clay jar for safekeeping. What is he doing? He's embodying hope. So even when the enemy's at the gate, even when the sky is falling, even when the clouds have lost their silver lining, God is still in charge. God is still on the throne. Restoration is coming. And that's not wishful thinking. That's hopeful trusting. That property deed in the hands of a prophet means that God is still at work even in the midst of the crisis. When I was doing my doctoral work at SMU 15 years ago, I remember reading a book called Transforming Mission by David J. Bosch, a Dutch reformer from South Africa. Christianity Today rightly calls this book one of the, one of the 100 most significant books of the 20th century. And in the book, among others, he makes this profound point. Listen to this. It is normal for Christians to live in a situation of crisis. And we must know that to encounter crisis is to encounter the possibility of truly being the church. What he means is that Christ followers are good in a crisis. That we're not called to knee-jerk. We're not called to be reactionary, to panic or to go AWOL. We're called to trust that God is somehow involved in the bad as well as the good. He is present in the darkness and in the light. That's what the psalmist says in 139. Even the darkness, O God, is not dark to you. Our journey through the crisis of the last 22 months, when you stop and think about it and pray about it, it's actually an opportunity for the church to reset, to pivot from old patterns and to look afresh at God's future and to actually embrace, even in the crisis, our mission and our purpose for such a time as this. The other vision of hope for Jeremiah is in the text, DJ, that you read for us, chapter 33. The image, and this is again very bizarre, the image Jeremiah has is of a fallen tree. It's an old stump, which I think really is actually a sign of hopelessness, a sign of futility. In fact, I would say it's the mark of a broken promise, an old tree stump, Maybe you remember in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised that there will always be a son of David on the throne, but you cannot have a throne if you have lost your kingdom. And that's what happened in the exile. The family tree was cut down. The lineage of David, it's history. With the burning of the temple and the destruction of the holy city, David's stock is finished. And yet, in Jeremiah's vision, this old stump seems to be blooming. Have you ever heard the phrase, bloom where you're planted? I think that's what the bishop says when he sends you to an impossible task that no one else wants. 
That's what the boss says. When he gives you a job that you don't want and don't ask for, bloom where you're planted. And let's face it, you don't always get to choose the soil, but you can choose whether to sprout or whether to wither. Hope springs <laughs> eternal. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and Judah, I will cause a righteous branch, listen to this, to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now listen, that word for branch in the Hebrew is netzer, N-E-T-Z-E-R, netzer. Centuries later, after this was written, in the hills of Galilee, in northern Israel, there would arise a tiny village, a Jewish village, where descendants of David would settle, and they would name that town Nazareth. We pronounce it Nazareth. From a little no-named town, a son of David would arise from a fallen tree, from a dead stump, the hope of the world will spring forth and he will embody justice and righteousness in the land just as Jeremiah predicted six centuries before it ever happened. I've noticed that God often saves God's best work for those days when hope seems to be hanging by a thread, when the future seems fuzzy and the forecast is bleak. The life of Jesus himself is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. In other words, he entered the world through a door marked no entrance, and he left the world through a door marked no exit. And this is the good news of Advent. I don't presume to know what you're facing today. I don't know whatever obstacle you're facing, whatever the challenge or crisis, but we're to hold on to hope. You have a future not based on wishful thinking. It's not Pollyanna. It's not naive. We know the reality, but a future that is rooted in the promise of God, hope. Jerome Groupman who is a professor at Harvard Medical School and author of the book, The Anatomy of Hope, says, and I quote, researchers are today discovering that hope has the power to alter neurochemistry. Belief and expectation, which are the key elements of hope, can actually, he says, block pain by releasing the brain's endomorphins, mimicking the effects of morphine turns out that hope is the new dope. The science follows our theology. Christmas came early for the Chapel family this year. This is my last word. Today's the first day I've ever baptized a baby as a grandfather, and I have to tell you, Beth, it was different today. It was different. He was born last night at 7.55 Eastern Time, Crosby Rivers Hoopa. We refer to him as CR Hoops now. 
He's nine pounds, one ounce, 21 inches. Mother and baby are well. And as you can see, he's already preaching. <laughs> the last nine months have been a pregnant pause for our family. And finally, last night at 7.55, hope is fulfilled. And I have to tell you, it was worth the wait. COVID prohibited us while we were in Atlanta from going to the hospital. We're going to meet him probably on Wednesday. But I have to tell you, this boy for the chapels is hope personified. When we have the chance, and we will in a few days, to hold him in our arms and welcome him into the world just four weeks from Christmas, we'll give thanks for another child to come who has come, who is come, and who will come again, who is called wonderful, <laughs> counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In fact, we don't really have to wait, do we? Because he's already here. In fact, his presence in this place is our hope. And his presence is what enables us to embody hope, to become a sign of hope to a dark and lonely world. And that, dear friends, is not wishful thinking. It's just gospel truth. Thanks be to God.